Welcome back to the Do Theology podcast, where we keep doctrine in its place. I'm Jeremy from Utah. And I'm Ken from Indiana. Today, we will be playing for you an interview that we conducted with Tim Challies. We asked him questions about church history, about the local church, and what life is like as a daily blogger in what some would call discernment ministry. We get some personal thoughts and reflections that he has about those things, and uh, we know that you'll get a lot out of it. So please share your thoughts, your feedback with us. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. You can email us at show at dotheology.com. We'd love to hear from you. And then on the other side of the music, we'll go ahead and start this interview. Thanks for listening. Calvinism is much false doctrine as a woman preacher. Well, of course, in fundamentalism, you define everything as a gospel issue. This is a true mark of Christian maturity to discern the difference of issues. I got an idea. Let's not run with anybody who thinks they got another idea. There's a lot of different understandings of what the days are in Genesis 1 and to what degree evolution was part of how God created things. I have disagreements with him in some areas, but those are adiaphora, those are side issues, many important issues. So many Bible doctrines are ruined when we use the wrong words. This is why it's so critical that we use only the King James Bible. You gotta have that right or get out of here. Pray God that I don't take every minor thing and make a major thing out of it. Nothing divides like truth. I respect them as brothers in the Lord with whom I have some strong differences, but they have a big problem with me. Is there a way that we can work together? I think fundamentally we have to say yes. Christians can disagree and still kick it. All right. Our guest today is one of the most influential Christian bloggers, book reviewers, and content curators on the internet. He is an elder at Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, the co-founder of Cruciform Press, and the author of several books, including The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment, Visual Theology, and his latest project, Epic, an around-the-world journey through Christian history. You can learn more about the project at epicchristianhistory.com or the popular chalies.com. Tim Chalies, welcome to the podcast. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. That latest project, Epic, uh, released earlier this year. Uh, what was the motivation for that project, and did the travel and experiences live up to the hype? <laughs> yeah, the motivation was really just I had this idea years ago to tell Christian history through objects and uh, kind of did some writing on that through the blog, actually put together a little blog series, but all the while this nagging thought that it would be nice to actually see these things. And a few years later, I actually got around to mapping it out. What would it look like? to do all that and um, sort of plotted it out, how it would unfold and realize this is like way beyond my means, not a little bit like this is way beyond my means. Uh, just could never happen. Uh, but then it happened. So I was able to uh, get secure funding for it and go and uh, do the trip. So it was amazing and really did live up to the hype. It was a, an incredible experience that uh, really shaped me. I'm so thankful to have had it. It was uh, a tremendous privilege. So you're traveling took you uh, to a Six continents, 75 flights, 1,800 miles around the world. 180,000 miles. That's, that's yeah. what I meant to say. That's what I meant to say. 180,000 miles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the personal challenges that comes with that? just an intense traveling schedule and, and all of that? Yeah. So all this fit around my conference travel, too. So uh, it was a year of just tons of movement uh, around Canada, the U.S., and then beyond. So it was quite a, about a year and a half stretch there where I was on the road a lot. And uh, yeah, so typically I would go for a week at a time or so and then come back and then wait a few weeks, then do another week away. 
And, um, man, yeah, we, we covered, I think 24 ish countries and, um, six continents, eight McDonald's in 21 countries had some pretty unique, uh, experiences along the way. It was, it was incredible. The the logistical challenges, a lot of it was the planning component, just trying to uh, find contacts on the ground, make sure that when we landed, we knew what we were going to do, where we were going to go, how to get there. There's places in the world you can land and jump in a car and drive yourself. There's places in the world, i.e. India, where in theory you can do that, but people tell me you really don't want to. Um, So you got to secure a driver as well. And so just lots of logistical things, really just a ton of planning and organization. I imagine so. Now this uh, the, it it's available in different formats. Right? There's a a print book. There's a video series that's available streaming on different services. What would be some of the things that you would gain from perhaps maybe the the book version over the video version that maybe you wouldn't get from the other? Sure. Yeah, they're totally different products, but related to one another. And so the 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 video really focuses on the journey, just following me through these countries as I go looking for objects. The book focuses much more on a telling of Christian history. It tells more what I found. And so if the video is the journey, the uh, the book is the destination, I suppose. And um, so I think they go together really nicely. Uh, each kind of tells its own part of the story. Um, but I think either one could be enjoyed on its own as well. Now, it seems like your main website, challeys.com, has been around since the dawn of the internet. But we know that can't be true. So how long has your main website been functioning online? I guess since 2002, I think, is when I jumped into the blogging world. Had a few false starts here and there. I was involved in uh, digital technology work from the get-go. So I started the blog around 2002, called it challeys.com because it was really for my family. They had moved down to the States, and I wanted something for them. Um, so it was in its first, um, in the way I dreamed it, it was really going to be a site for Chally's to talk to one another. Hmm. Uh, this was pre-Facebook and everything, so there's no online way of really doing that. Uh, obviously, it's evolved some since then. Yeah, yeah. Just a tad. Um, on July 10th of 2017, you announced in an article on your website that it was your 5,000th consecutive day of blogging. Is that streak still going? Where did it end at? What's the story on that? Yeah, still going. I think just a week or two ago, I hit 6,000, something like that. So I guess that would make sense from 2017 to 2020. So uh, yeah, just hit 6,000 consecutive days of blogging, or at least 6,000 consecutive days of putting something out on the blog. I don't necessarily write every day. I I do take Sundays off. I do take vacations, etc. Um, but yeah, I started that really as a means I was a bad blogger. I was failing at it. I was had these huge gaps between posts and was just getting lazy about it and uh, challenged myself why don't you write every day for a year if you can't develop any discipline with this and just set it aside and go find a different hobby. So I challenged myself and a year later I found I'd written every day for a year. So decided to renew it. And then it just kind of became a thing. And now it's like, it's gone for so long. I need something super significant to break the streak. It feels like to me, like it, there's gotta be some really good, good reason before I call it off. So yeah, I just keep pressing on it, There's no great significance to it. It's no great accomplishment. It's just kind of become fun. Yeah, well, and it's uh, an amazing achievement because I write, but I don't think I could I could do uh, that much. Uh, that's a lot of writing, and in all of that, through all these years, which now we can basically say decades, all these years of writing and having that constant engagement with a Christian audience, what have you learned through that? What has it taught you 
about how believers comprehend and analyze theological issues. Since we are a, a theology podcast and we seek to talk about the difference between primary and secondary and, and things of that nature, what have you learned from your audience about how they think through those issues? Man, that's a broad question. Um, first, let me back up a little bit. I think it was William, William Carey. Others have probably been uh, quoted saying this, but something like, I'm not afraid at failing. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. I would say blogging 6,000 days in a row is succeeding at something that really doesn't matter. Um, there's, there's great benefit in writing and in building habits, but uh, that's not one of the things I'd want to be known for over the, uh, the course of a long life. Um, yeah, what have I learned, man? So my first efforts in blogging, other than those very first ones where I was just kind of talking about my family, um, the first ones were wrestling through some theological issues. At the time, I was part of a church that was doing uh, Rick Warren's program, The Purpose Driven Life. Um, it was very much a pragmatic uh, church growth kind of church, and that wasn't sitting right with me. I had been raised in a Dutch Reformed, staunchly Reformed tradition. I had that theological background and now found myself working out, like, why is this so different? Why does this not feel right? Does it feel right because my feelings can't be trusted, or is there some theological instinct here that uh, I need to address? And um, then the church got into like the passion of the Christ when that came along and sending people, gathering the neighborhood, trying the community, trying to send them to the movie is the, what Warren called or Warren called the greatest evangelistic opportunity since Pentecost slightly overstated, yeah, no um, but <laughs> you know, that's the kind of print that uh, the kind of copy that sells. Um, so I think it was really just working those things out. And hence my first book was on spiritual discernment. Um, and I, I kind of became known for, discernment in the early days. I think, while I hope I'm still discerning, I think I sort of switched away to more just talking about the Christian life through what I hope is a discerning lens. But uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but maybe you can do a follow-up from there. Yeah. I mean, do you get pushback very much when you do go into those areas of theology? Um, you know, when you get into secondary issues, perhaps, do you feel like you get more of a hard response from your audience than whenever you're talking about primary things? Like, is there a, an imbalance in the Christian world or have you been surprised at how balanced things are? So, you know, you've sort of hit a, a some point in being a blogger or being a public figure when everything you say attracts some sort of criticism. <laughs> and it was sort of a wake up call. There was a time when the people who read me were generally supportive. Um, but now, I mean, I can't really say much of anything without people um, fighting back. And I don't know if that's just because people have gotten meaner or the audience has gotten bigger or people are more contrary. Everything's politicized now. I don't even know what I can and cannot say anymore. I, I don't really pay attention to social media. Ironically, I, I don't go on Twitter. I don't keep up with the discernment blogs. I don't even know what the, the tripwires are out there anymore uh, until I start getting the angry emails and, and stuff. So uh, I'm sometimes surprised, but I think maybe a big issue is people considering secondary issues to be primary issues. And that's always been it. these marks of orthodoxy that the Bible does not clearly lay out. The, the historic creeds, confessions don't lay out, but people today would say that's a, an issue of either Christian truth, like you're, you are, are or are not a believer, or an issue of um, disfellowshipping one another. So I think that's a big thing. And then just a huge amount of lack of Romans 14 kind of love for one another, where you're saying it's okay to disagree. Um, I, I try to make it so clear in my 
ministry and my church to other people, the distinction between thus saith the Lord and thus saith Tim. These are very different things in my view. And I try and clearly say, this is what the Bible says. And now here's some counsel, here's some advice, but this does not have the weight of biblical authority behind it. I think there's a lot of conflating of all those things. Yeah, so with that, you, you, you also mentioned a moment ago how you know, some of your blogging journey has been working through, you just even in your own life, some different theological issues and trying to think through some of those things. And you had a little bit of a series on that back in 2016 when you uh, wrote that series titled Why I Am Not... And then you had a series of things, uh, atheist, Roman Catholic, liberal, Arminian, paedo-baptist, dispensational, egalitarian, and then continuationist. And then you had that graphic that went along with that series that had those concentric circles leading down towards the center. And uh, that and those rings were in the order of how I just listed, all, listed off those different issues. So my question is, uh, did your views on the levels of doctrinal importance lead you to line them up? in that way where you went from maybe most important to things that are considered much more secondary? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was meant to be reflected in the graphic. I did the, I did that order deliberately. So if you're why I'm not Roman Catholic, that's distinguishing true faith from false faith, um, orthodoxy from Catholic heresy. Um, but as you get closer and closer to the middle, you're into more of those nuanced issues where Christians can, disagree with one another, even if we have to say, I couldn't be in the same church, or maybe I could be in the same church. You guys are familiar with that, that kind of territory. So, um, yeah, very much. So it was meant to represent that. And I think oh. I expressed in there, there was a line we crossed in, mm-hmm. in the, uh, right. moving from one to the next. How have you come to understand just as a personal conviction, which doctrines are of first importance and which ones are, aren't in a world where people seem to draw the line anywhere they want? Well, that's part of my interest in church history is we, I think as Christians, all of us have this, this, I don't know, we don't express it, but it's this, this belief that we are the only ones who really get it. We are the first generation to have to deal with issues and so on. But if we keep uh, attuned to church history, we realize there's 2000 years worth of great minds who've been thinking through many of the same issues, maybe through, uh, in slightly different ways. Nobody had heard of a Jehovah's witness back, uh, around the time of the Nicene Council or something, but I mean, they had many of the same issues. Right. And so we need to be looking back and grounding ourselves in scripture, but also in the historic creeds. These creeds were created for a reason and Christians all through the ages have, uh, have proclaimed them. And so, um, yeah, we got to keep looking back and see if, if things do not disagree with the, the creeds, the historic creeds, then chances are these are not primary issues. Is there a certain hesitation that may come with, you know, when you're blogging or speaking someplace and you're touching, uh, offering an opinion on either secondary or tertiary issues? Is there any kind of hesitation that comes with that, knowing that there may be people that are going to be hearing that and, you know, there's a a potential that it could cause unnecessary division? Yeah, I I try to be aware of that. I don't always know. Like I said, I don't know what all the tripwires are. And the great majority of my speaking is in a different culture, i.e. America. Most of my speaking is in the U.S. Um, I'm Canadian. These are things you can think, you know, uh, you know, these things, but you can go into the south or into the north and find very different views on very specific issues. Um, you know, I've got the awareness to know up here, alcohol is really not going to be much of an issue. If you go to England, even less of an issue. You go to the south, 
chances are it's going to be a pretty big issue. And that's, you know, you Torches get some and of pitchforks down there over that stuff. Right, exactly. But I mean, just the other day I wrote about government and um, just kind of a Romans 13 assessment of government, as I understand it. And man, the pushback from entirely Americans, 100% of the negative feedback, I think, was or very close to it was from Americans. And clearly I, I, I tripped over a tripwire there. I didn't, I just hadn't thought of that, how differently Americans see government versus Europeans. And I'd say Canada is far closer to a European nation culturally than um, we are to the U.S. And so I try to have an awareness of those things, but sometimes I fail. And if I'm going to, I'm I'm supposed to be speaking in Norway later this year, and they actually told me some of these things. Please don't talk about like homeschooling or something like that. That's not a thing here. It's not, you know, that's not a cultural issue here. We can't do it. And so that would be one of those things where you have to have some, someone has to tell you, you have to have some awareness, you don't kind of blunder into secondary or tertiary issues. For people who put themselves out there like you do, um, you know, with the website, God's given you a platform and you're committed to writing. And so that those two things together mean that your opinion is going to be out there quite a bit and you are going to get that uh, pushback that you've been talking about. Has that over the years made your skin thicker? Um, are you a little more resistant to uh, attacks and pushback that you might get in the comment section of, you know, theological professionals that don't have the same platform as you? I don't know. I kind of feel the opposite is happening. I, I kind of feel like I'm being worn down by it. Mm. And um, at some point it might actually break me. So I'm, I'm, I'm attuned to that, aware of that and somewhat concerned about that. Um, there's some really mean people out there and I'm fine if I'm wrong. Absolutely. That's, that's one thing, you know, if I've sinned against somebody or if I'm given a, a position that's biblically wrong, um, that that's one thing, of course, but, um, the, the sheer amount of cruelty out there and people who just don't treat things with love, um, who would spread rumors and all that without ever approaching even people who consider themselves friends, uh, in ministry, people are going to be at a conference with and who will say horrendous things. It's it's very, very odd. And yeah, I feel like over time, I'm getting less able to handle it. And so um, that's really brought me to the matter of identity. Who am I in Christ? And then um, surrounding myself with people who will, I trust and who will tell me if I'm sinning or if I'm uh, in any way being offensive or wrong. Um, but then also just wondering if this is, if I'm, if I really want to be in this in the, for the long haul, there's uh yeah, I don't know. There's part of me that would uh, not object to not being in this for the long haul. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, if you've got, if you've got thin skin as I may, it's a, it can be a hard thing it can wear you down. Well, yeah. I, I don't want because... people to, to feel sorry for me. It's just, just reality. It's, well, it sure. can be hard. Yeah. I mean, I mean, especially because the comment section is the place where, people go, I mean, there are a lot of people who will open something up and before even reading the original content, will go to the comment section and oh, yeah. then they'll formulate all their opinions about the content based on the comment section. And, um, what you, what you find there is often not very balanced. Yeah. Oh, and you can always tell the people who have not read the article, they've just let it read a comment. So they've read the headline yeah. and maybe done a quick scan, but mostly they're there just to, to speak without listening. So well, I think maybe Proverbs says something about that. But. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I think the best, uh, you know, exhibit A for that today is the Babylon B, when people don't give oh, it a yeah. satire. And they read the headline <laughs> and just start blowing it up. It's like, you guys got to do some, a little bit of due diligence here. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. One of the challenging things about 
the world that we live in, some of the things that you just described and, uh, people want to attach labels to things and just lump people into certain categories. One of those labels that has kind of been floating around here in the last couple of years is this term Big Eva, if you're familiar with that. Um, Carl Truman, he's a critic of Big Eva. He defines the term as a network of large evangelical organizations and conferences that seeks to shape the thinking and strategy of the American evangelical churches. Do you think that term is... uh, is accurately defined? Do you think it is helpful for the church, or do you think it actually ends up just bringing unnecessary division amongst believers? Yeah, I would want to. Um, I'd want to be careful there. I got a lot of respect for uh, Carl Truman, and um, I met him personally on a few occasions and benefited from that relationship. So uh, I appreciate him. Um, I think there's a sense out there. I don't want to accuse. Carl, this, but I think there's a sense out there that there's a lot of communication happening between people and individuals and organizations and all that. Therefore, it's a this big Eva thing can be a little conspiratorial. And the person who shaped my understanding of conspiracy theory more than anyone else is Carl Truman. He's said some brilliant things about it that have really shaped my thinking. So um, I don't want to accuse him of falling into the the, the very things he's. He, he's criticized. So maybe there is such a thing. I know personally, if there is, I'm not part of it and I have no awareness of it. I don't, nobody consults me or asks me or tells me or anything. I'm, I'm not part of anything. I've never gotten any indication. I, I'm sure there are organizations that are talking strategically and everything else, but I'm not aware of any kind of conspiracy to try and get these organizations to shape things or push things in a certain direction. Yeah, labels but also, are... it, he says specifically American evangelicalism. I'd remind you, I'm on the other side of an international border from American evangelicalism. <laughs> That's true. Um, though you, in Toronto, you're actually at a lower latitude than some parts of the United States, right? You're lower yeah, than not just Alaska. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, labels are an interesting thing because they're they're obviously helpful to an extent, I mean, like your whole why I'm not series, those labels are helpful dividing lines to kind of see where people are. But um, <laughs> it seems that through history, we get more labels. We don't, we don't lose labels. We actually just add to labels. And uh, what, what, what's your, what's your feeling with labels anyway? I mean, how often do you use those when you're describing your own uh, doctrine and theology or even your church's doctrine and theology? I think labels are helpful. I see them as theological shorthand. I can say I am reformed or I am a five pointer or whatever. And that just saves me having to use a lot of other words. My son came down earlier and was talking about annihilationists. It's a label. It's a helpful one because I know what certain people do believe and don't believe by virtue of the label. Um, I'd want to contrast labels with flags, you know, because there's, we can take reformed and be it like we, we run this thing up a flagpole and rally around the label to the exclusion of other people. And so now we're reformed against Arminians and we're, we're starting to talk about who they are not and what they cannot do and what they cannot be. And um, again, there's, there's a time and a place for that. But um, yeah, I, I think if we're using labels as theological shorthand, it's more helpful than using them as as rallying points. So uh, that's maybe a false distinction in some ways, but uh, that's how I prefer to think about it. And, you know, I I think in the the history of the little theological movement I've been part of, um, 
we called it a reformed movement, but one of the big errors, it was never really grounded in the historic reformed faith. And so it was only ever a little bit reformed. It was basically a bit of reformed soteriology, three and a half to four out of five points was enough, and you could be part of this. And um, there wasn't a ton of clarity on some of the other doctrines and some of the the wider history of the reformed movement, uh, reformed theology. So that's why I think we're starting to see some fraying uh, along the seams is, um, yeah, I just don't know that it was well-defined to begin with. Yeah, and thinking of the context of the local church with that, I was looking at the doctrinal statement at your church, Grace Fellowship, and the doctrinal statement is pretty clearly Calvinistic in its soteriology. I mean, you're a Reformed church, so you'd expect that. Um, Yet in the areas of eschatology, there's no particular position that's defined there. And so as leaders of your local church, have you all had conversations about the structure of your statement of faith and what what attenders should be expected to agree with when perhaps they're looking to join the membership? Uh, how, how much wiggle room do they get on issues like soteriology and eschatology? Yeah, yeah a fair bit of wiggle room. Um, we, the, the distinction we would make is like, this is clearly the position of the church. This is our, our statement of faith. So if you have a significant disagreement with that, please let us know. And um, we'll tell you what we believe, even on some issues that aren't covered in the statement of faith, if you want to know. There's a few areas, um, like creationism, where the pastors would have a uniform viewpoint, but might not necessarily uh, make that part of our our statement of faith. Um, But then we would ask people, if you have differing views, we'd ask you just not to fight for us to adopt those views officially as a church. So if you want to, if you are a continuationist, in your view of the spiritual gifts, that we wouldn't say you may not be part of this church. Not at all. We'd be glad to have you. But we're never going to be a continuationist church, or at least as we see it now, we would never intend to have a, a prophecy time or uh, something like that within the church. We're not going to have prophetic songs, that kind of stuff. So as long as you know that and don't start fighting for that, then uh, we're okay to adopt, uh, to just draw people into membership who have differing views on those um, secondary tertiary matters. So you're telling me at your church, you don't run down with a banner and do all kinds of crazy dances and symbols and stuff on Sunday morning. I would not. No, <laughs> it just seems right down your alley. I'm shocked. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very expressive that way. <laughs> when it comes to the, you know, some, some of these tensions about unity and diversity within the church, you know, that, that project you were working on with the Epic and the traveling around in the church history and, and just seeing all of these great objects from church history. I'm curious to see, uh, know if, if you learned anything through that process that, that helped kind of highlight some of the, the reality between the unity and diversity of God's church as it has existed over the centuries. Well, I certainly learned that uh, the church is wider sometimes than we, we like to think. You just talk about the issue between uh, Reformed and Arminian. I mean, you can't study church history without celebrating what the Wesleys did as not just Arminians, but like staunch Arminians. And yet the Lord used them. And um, they broke from Whitfield famously because of this issue. And yet Whitfield was right when he continued to commend them despite the harm they were doing him and all that. So you do see that the Lord is at work, not just through people who hold the same theology as you. Uh, on the other hand, you have to realize we can't we can't go too wide. Um, you know, the Roman Catholic Church we don't have we don't have room to embrace them as uh, co-laborers in Christ. We have to say they're beyond 
the pale beyond uh, what is orthodox. So um, yeah, traveling the world was incredible to see believers in all different contexts, all different cultures following the same war, but sometimes in different ways. And uh, I've got, hopefully I'm, I'm going to be doing another travel project coming up um, when, when and if travel mm-hmm. is once again possible. And um, in that one, we're going to go to local churches around the world and try and find some of those things where how does culture inform your worship? So you're holding to orthodox doctrine. You would be grounded in the historic creeds, even uh, perhaps in the Reformed faith. But then how does culture inform you? So your church looks different from mine. Both of us are being thoughtful and attuned to the culture around us. Yeah, it's good stuff. I I can't imagine going on that journey you went on. I Just watching the trailer, I haven't... Uh, you know, purchased the the full videos yet, but just watching that and seeing the places where you went, um, there that had to be a life changing experience, wasn't it? Like, was it a? Yeah. Did it help shape a paradigm for you? Yeah, it really did. So, um, yeah, it, it definitely showed. I mean, a lot of things. It showed how small the world is and how much we have in similar with our brothers and sisters around the world. And you know, granted, I was I see the world through a certain theological paradigm, and the people who I'm most in contact with, often I would reach out to someone because they had sent me an email to say, "Hey, enjoy that article." By the way, I'm from India. I'm like, oh, I need to find someone in India, so I'll just write that guy and say, "Hey, can you help me find some stuff?" So, you know. It, I, I was I was working within my fairly limited group, but yeah, just in, impressed by how the Lord's working around the world, drawing people into Himself, and how similar we are. Um, but then also just how different we are in those those certain ways. And uh, I think the Lord calls us into His family. He calls us to unity, but not uniformity. And I was so blessed to see just how different we are, not through time, but also through uh, through geography, through culture. Well, what uh, what parting encouragement would you have for fellow believers in Christ, both leaders and lay people uh, in local churches around the world who wrestle with that unity and diversity as they seek to live a, a life of unity that promotes unity in Christ, but they also seek to develop their personal theological theological convictions and avoid foolish controversies? What What kind of encouragement would you have for them? Yeah, truth and love have to go together. And so there's a lot out on the internet, a lot of people in our church who are all truth. They're the truthers. They just want to, they'll do anything to defend the truth. They will act in the most unloving ways in order to defend the truth. Um, But truth and love can't be be separated. And so it doesn't make us wishy-washy if we are loving toward other people, even people with whom we have significant disagreements. We can still be loving. And all those commands in the wisdom literature, all those commands in 1 Corinthians 13 about loving other people, believing, hoping, desiring all things for them, all those things are in play even during theological controversies over secondary tertiary issues. So keep loving people. You protect the unity of the church through truth and love, not just through truth. And don't read discernment blogs. <laughs> no, I mean it. Just uh, people don't understand. Gossip is a two-way street. You participate yeah. in gossip by gossiping, but also by hearing gossip, by by bringing it in. And so there's a lot of people who would never gossip, but they will go on websites or speak to people who are constantly, constantly gossiping and not see their own sin in that, their own mm. fault. So I think... Christians have to do a really good job as you as you separate truth from error. You don't you, you can't sin 
in order to become less sinful. That doesn't make sense. You can't sin in order to come to a better awareness of truth. You've got to be holy all the way. So don't dive into gossip. Don't surround yourself by gossips in the hope that it'll live you, help you live a more uh, pure and holy Christian life. It, it's, that's totally counterintuitive and sinful. So careful so, where you get your information. If it looks like a Christian version of TMZ, stay away. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If the if it exists to separate people, if it exists to essentially gossip, it, there's a lot of Christian gossip blogs. I mean, maybe if we called it that way, it'd be more helpful. Yeah. You see Christian and gossip side by side, it would be hard to uh, <laughs> it'd be hard to see how those two, two things could mesh. So yeah, just be very very careful about where you're getting your information. Amen. Well, we are about out of time here, so we do just. Thank you so much for coming on our program, and uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, just sharing with us today. All right. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.